Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy. And if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. It's time for Women Who Code Conversations, a segment to hear from top technology professionals sitting down with a Women Who Code member to discuss real-world experiences in the industry, what they've learned over the course of their career, and what they think is coming next for tech. Today, we have an interview with Gail Evans, Chief Digital Officer at Mercer. She'll be discussing her career in technology and her path to leadership. Hello, everybody. My name is Chetna, and I'm an associate software engineer at Realtor.com and a lead with Women Who Code Python. I'm very excited to be here today uh, to interview Gail Evans. Uh, Gail is Mercer's chief digital officer from 2018 and is a member of the executive leadership team. Mercer is one of the four operating companies of Marsh McLennan as the CDO. She leads a dedicated team focused on driving and delivering Mercer's digital transformation strategy while partnering with a variety of teams across Mercer. Thank you so much for being here, Gail. Thank you, happy to be here. So uh, you've been in the tech industry in a leadership position for over 20 years now. And I really wanted our audience to hear from you about some of the highlights about your career journey in tech leadership? Sure. Um, I I mean, I've come from very humble beginnings. You know, I started my career, uh, I thought I was going to be uh, on the assembly line uh, packaging film, uh, but went to school part time while working to get my degree. And I fell in love with software engineering, but I almost became a teacher, uh, but uh, fell in love with the, the web, the opportunity to drive so much change and create value with technology. So I've been a software engineer, a chief architect, a CTO, a CIO at these various companies. I started my career at Eastman Kodak Company. And there I I learned how to be a coder. I learned how to be an architect. And I left Eastman Kodak Company as their CIO of consumer. I skipped over to Bank of America where I led bankofamerica.com. And there I learned about performance and volume and being a part of a, a high velocity website. From there, I left and and led HP.com's transformation. I always sought after transformations. You know, it's a lot of energy in transforming a company using technology to create value for the colleagues and for the clients. But I needed a big tech name on my resume. So I skipped over to Microsoft and led uh, Microsoft Studios. transformation and change with uh, their uh, Xbox titles. And from there, I I fell in love with Mercer. I I found purpose in my life. And uh, with Mercer, I I came to Mercer to lead their digital transformation and also modernize their technology. So most of my career has been around modernizing, using tech to create value for consumers, for businesses, and for colleagues. That is incredible. Uh, That journey has so many, uh, it's it's spanning to such a duration and probably you would have seen so much. So really glad to be here with you today. Um, Could you uh, talk us through a day uh, at Mercer? In the early days of Mercer, I started Mercer as the CIO. 
And uh, it was, it was different. It was my first um, entry into a consultant's life. And what did it mean to be a consultant and the tools that they used and uh, B2B clients in a whole different way. Uh, in the first two years, it was really learning about the tools they used and how do I apply technology to help the colleagues and the actuaries and the consultants to deliver value to their clients. And, and it, was, it became more and more exciting as a CIO where I then thought about, well, we need to modernize our tools and we need to start to think about how digital can play a role for our colleagues and our clients. And then I was asked to be the digital uh, officer. And with that, I got to sit on the executive leadership team and start to introduce algorithms, uh, data as a service. We created our own Mercer OS. You know, I figured, you know, we can have an operating system as well. And so my day at Mercer begins with a team because any success from any leader is about their team. And for me, the team I was able to assemble with Mercer has delivered many millions of dollars to the company, but more importantly, a team that has fun learning and transforming the culture to become more agile. And that's been a very exciting journey for me at Mercer. That is incredible. Um, speaking of, uh, Mercer, and I, I wanted to touch a little bit about some of the things within Mercer's culture that excites you. Um, so could you talk to us about that? I'm surrounded by smart people. <laughs> Every day I go to work, the, the people at Mercer are, they're smart, they're passionate, and they're caring. Um, it, it is an atmosphere and a culture that really activates in its employees the, the, the energy to do their very best. And so those are the, that's the culture I thrive in most. But I've learned many times in my career, early in my career as a, a Black woman in tech, it hasn't always been an easy road. You know, I may speak of it with a smile, but it wasn't always smiles for sure. Um, but at Mercer, I found a place where I could learn a new domain. I could deliver value with tech. And the culture was thirsty for change. And, and that helped drive the digital transformation I was able to lead. Well, that, is, that is awesome. Uh, just to just to be in a culture like that, you would be uh, every day would be like a new day and like every minute would be enjoyable. So thank you for sharing. Every minute, every minute, every minute is, is something different every day. Right. Because yeah. the we we have three business units in Mercer, health, wealth and career, and they all have their own set of challenges. And what we've been trying to do as a digital team is to de deliver a platform, the Mercer OS, to drive revenue, cost efficiency, but more importantly, solve our clients' issues in a way that is personalized and on demand for them so that they can understand their workforce, they can understand their health benefits, and they can leverage our wealth investment. Uh, capability. So it's it's absolutely a fun day every day. That's awesome. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, so now talking a little bit about your leadership, you've been, uh, like we touched upon before, you've been in leadership for a long time. So how would you describe your leadership style currently as compared to when you began Kodak? Like um, what differences do you see there? And uh, also, what are some of the lessons you 
learned the hard way through through this career progression of yours? My leadership style early, um, I guess I always thought I needed to be like someone else, you know, or um, my style, because it was so different, wasn't the right style for corporate. And, you know, it, it impacted the way I, I led the team. Uh, over the years, I realized it was really okay just to be me. <laughs> it was okay to be me and all of the, the learnings um, that, that I had along the way from my parents, my mom, by the way, my rock, I'd be remiss not to call her out because I am a product of all of what she has instilled in me. And I use that every day because leadership is about caring and nurturing. You know, sometimes I feel like a gardener, right? You plant seeds and you watch them grow and you nurture them. So my leadership style is about coaching, about growing leaders and helping them on their journey. It's not about being like anyone else. It's about learning about your team, knowing your team, being able to have a personal relationship with your team. When I say personal, I mean, I want to know who you are now. And, and that is important to folks these days, for sure, is to, uh, so I lead by example. I, uh, I try very hard to help a, a, a team member on their career paths and their journey to reach the heights of their potential and, and have a lot of fun along the way. That is so incredible. The, the, the fact, even though I'm not in a leadership role currently, the fact that you mentioned that you know, you need needed to be like somebody. Those words are so powerful um, because like many times uh, in life, like I think the same thing. I'm, I'm like, do I need to like, do I need to fit into a template or like, you know, if I look up to somebody, do I need to be like them? Do I need to just uh, derive their style and follow it? Um, and then there's identity lost there. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, so you be comfortable in your own skin, you know, just, yeah. you know, when you make a mistake, you, you sometimes, you know, you're your own worst critic. And it's very important in software. You know, I have never seen bugless software, by the way, right? Never. Right. So there's always a bug somewhere. Someone's going to find it, you know, and I and I, I think that sometimes, you know, the need to be perfect. Follows us and. I don't I don't believe that that needs to be that 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 perfection needs to be sought after because you learn from so many mistakes, you learn so much from failure. And the whole agile principle is about fail fast. So they gave us permission and technology to fail fast and to learn. So yeah. be comfortable in your own skin, for sure. Yep, yep, definitely. Um, so now moving towards more like a general kind of question, uh, what are some things you enjoy doing outside of work? some of your hobbies or something like that? Well, my friends call me a geek because what I enjoy the most is a cup of coffee and picking a technology topic and researching it. You know, some, I can't code as much as I used to, by the way, but, you know, I have my own AWS account. I play around in the cloud. And, you know, I, I, I self-taught myself just the entry level of Python. 
and some of the algorithm, machine learning languages, just so that I can have a conversation with folks on my team and, and be a good leader and to be a good technology leader, I also need to understand and know the tech. But what really excites me outside of work is my grandson. He is the joy of my life. And I get to play with him. Uh, he keeps uh, the energy and my heartbeat uh, at a certain pace, chasing him, actually. Uh, but um, it is a new phase for me having a grandson. And what I adore most is that I can give him back to his parents. Um, and I, I have two boys of my own. So uh, it feels good to spoil him and give him back to his parents. That is so much fun uh, to to just like, you know, play around with him and like to be able to see him at that age. Um, how how old is he? He's three. He's three oh. years old. Yeah. <laughs> so much of energy, probably. He does. He does, and he loves to play tag. And so wow. you know, sometimes you wish you were twenty years younger, chasing him over <laughs> around the kitchen. But it's it's fun, and you know it's. Um, it's a joy to be at this stage in, in my career. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so a couple of uh, questions for thinking about the future of women in, in tech. Uh, what excites you the most about the future of tech? And what do you think women would specifically bring into the table? I think the future of tech is changing changing the world it's um, you know as you think about what you know data and analytics is you know from a personalization the more I know about you the more I can serve you uh, I can personalize you know the the communications with you look at social media oh my god it's blown up you know Facebook Instagram you know, and all of these new technologies, these SaaS models, I think are changing the way we communicate, uh, the way we interface with each other. The smartphone, form, smartphone is a game changer uh, in terms of, you know, you, you will never leave your phone at home. You will never leave that. Everything is in it. Every app you have, every phone number, how you communicate. I, my sons, by the way, text more than they speak. So, uh, I, you know, it's changing their behavior. Um, so, you know, 5G and, and what that will bring and the speed by which it will, will change the way we communicate even further. So I think technology for any company. The pandemic, for example, you know, has given digital a big boost uh, during the pandemic and, and how these new digital technologies and networking helped us to continue to communicate and continue to work. I think women uh, will continue to bring a big difference to technology in the way in which women approach technology and solve problems differently, you know, and, and lead differently. Because technology in itself is not where the value is. It's how we take that technology and solve problems with it, create value for our clients, for our consumers, for our colleagues. And I think women are in a unique unique position to tackle those new behaviors in a way in which many will benefit from their perspective. But they need to be themselves. They need to allow themselves to look at a problem through their lens, not to be like anyone but to solve the problem using the technology strength that they know they have and solve that problem uniquely 
for the client, the consumer, or or the colleague. And I think once women are able to do that, they will rise in um, status and in roles and 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 be seen in more leadership roles. That's what we need. Don't be afraid of yeah. leadership. Do not be afraid of taking a leadership role. You know, take it and nail it and 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 go on to the next one. And dream big. Don't dream small. Dream big. Dream big. I was a dreamer. I was a janitor, and now I'm the chief digital officer of Mercer. I was a dreamer. And dreams do come true. That is so um, powerful because um, many times, even if uh, we're like when we're looking at a problem, and when we sometimes come up with something unique and more efficient than somebody else maybe who's known to have that knowledge throughout even if it's more efficient we still question ourselves we're like okay did I probably what I did wasn't right you know like this isn't this probably is wrong so we're just going to let's just move back to what they did and work from there so I find that not only me a a lot of women um, have this kind of mentality and um, definitely dreaming big. Yeah, all the way to go. Don't um, be silent. Let your voice be heard. Don't yeah. be silent. Be courageous. Be courageous. Thank you be for that. Be phenomenal. Be phenomenal. That's who you are. For wow. sure. Thanks again. So uh, one more final question before we uh, wrap up. Uh, what is one pro tip for women in tech? I know we've we've spoken about a couple of things. Uh, many uh, women have imposter syndrome. There's there's many many things that women have to tackle. But according to you, what is one big resounding pro tip in your mind to women in tech? I think you should. Women should you should have a core. Whatever that core technology is, whether it's AI, whether it's, you know, software development, whatever it is, be good at it. Be really good at it. But be confident that you are good at it. You know, and I think that that will enable you to take more risk. and have a lot more fun if you allow yourself to feel like you're the best and be confident that you are and can deliver. All the fear will go away and you'll have so much more fun. When you walk in the room and you know you're the best, it's a wonderful feeling. <laughs> it's a yep. wonderful <laughs> feeling, you know, and you know, you don't, you're not sort of crazy about it. You just know that you are. And you treat people with that kindness. Because at the end of the day, as I mentioned, and I'll, I'll end with what I started, it's the team. It is really the team that makes a leader successful. Oh, um, I'm I'm sure the audience would uh, definitely join me uh, in saying a huge thank you to you uh, for doing uh, for speaking to us today and sharing so much of knowledge uh, that we'll take away from this. Thank you so much, Gail. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Women Who Code Talks Tech is a segment that features experts in a specific field of technology sharing their knowledge on an in-depth and highly technical subject. These talks are designed to both introduce advanced subjects and provide insight into the work being done in these fields. Today on the Women Who Code Talks Tech segment of the podcast, we're featuring Brianna Augenwright, 
Senior Software Engineer at Capital One, in a talk entitled, How to Provision Your Application Environment with Packer, Ansible, and Terraform. So, I want you to think about resource creation. And when you think of resource creation, we're thinking about the physical items that you would normally be provisioning in your data center, so to speak. Um, so your compute resources, like if you're running in AWS, maybe your EC2 instance or your auto scaling group. Um, if you're running in, in Google, it might be Google App Engine or Google Compute Engine. Um, you want to think about the data stores that need to be created in order to serve up data to your application, um, your relational data stores, your NoSQL data stores, your object store. Um, what about your load balancers that you need to distribute your traffic across all of your instances? Um, and not to mention some third-party connections like maybe Cloudflare that is helping serve, a, serve as a WAF in front of your application or as a content distribution um, front end. So, Resource configuration or creation are those um, traditional pieces that you're thinking about when you're creating what is running your application. On the flip side, we have application configuration. Most times when you're deploying your application to whatever resource you've created, um, you're not going to be able to run right out the bat. You might need to install a language. Maybe you need Java running or Node on your box. Um, or if you don't need to install a language, because you could argue that you're um, running with containers, at which point uh, you might need Docker installed on your cluster. Or maybe you need a container orchestration um, system like Mesos and Marathon or Kubernetes. Those are the things that are enabling our application to run that aren't necessarily our application code, but need to be configured and set up. Um, they can also be things like your Datadog agent. So an agent that's going to be able to capture data that you're gonna ship back to in order to look at monitoring and logging. Um, or configuring things like log rotate for so that your box doesn't fill up disk space um, with the logs over many uh, days of running. So now that we understand that there are these pieces and parts to our infrastructure delivery, this is where the good stuff comes in. Ansible, Packer, and Terraform help us implement our infrastructure as code, check off the boxes of secure, reliable, maintainable infrastructure, and deliver those pieces and parts, the resource creation and the application configuration. So let's dive a little bit into these uh, tools and technologies. First and foremost, we have Ansible. On here, you will see this definition from straight from the Ansible uh, playbook and documentation. Ansible is an open source software provisioning, configuration management, and application deployment tool. It can run on Unix systems, and it can configure Unix-like and um, Windows systems as well. Um, when you think of Ansible, I want you to think of configuration management. It's how we provision all of these services and components that we need to run our software. So we're looking at this infrastructure delivery breakdown, we're talking about the application configuration side of things. So again, installing tools, configuring procedures, uh, installing languages, starting and stopping services. So a quick look at Ansible in depth. And again, if you click on my face, it'll make the, uh, the code screen a little bit bigger for you to see. Um, up here, we have our playbook. Um, and this is taken straight from the Ansible documentation, and it has multiple plays within it. I love the Ansible uh, terms that they use, the playbooks and the plays. It's really cute. Um, but here we're building the components we need to service our application. So we have a web server play that is going to run to install the components needed for our web server. So we install Apache, the latest version of Apache, with our YUM installer. And then we configure that Apache server by copying over a file from its source in our code to the destination on the box. And it's that simple. You can read it, 
you know what's happening here. Um, one of the reasons why I really love Ansible. And then we move on to our database play. So being able to install Postgres and get the latest version and then start Postgres so that I can serve up the data layer of my application. Quick high level look at Ansible in code. Why might you decide to use Ansible? Again, you saw in the previous example that clear and concise YAML syntax um, goes back to enabling our maintainability, our readability and extensibility. It also has a really nice clean hierarchical design that we'll see later on in the demo um, that allows for reuse and uh, reduction of dry or increasing your dry, so not repeating yourself throughout your code. Um, it really simplifies some complex configuration logic. Um, as someone who has um, built many different servers with a lot of complexity um, and seen comparisons from different tools that you can use, it, it's really straightforward and simple to use out of the box with Ansible. Um, you don't have any extra daemons, agents, and special servers required to run this tool. And they have phenomenal documentation, which we'll talk about in the next example. So a really quick look, um, there's a several choices that you can use to configure um, your application configurations. In this uh, talk, we're going to talk about Ansible, Bash, and Chef, very popular um, choices there. So we have an Ansible example um, where we are going to try and mount an EBS volume to our EC2 instance. Um, you can see here, we're waiting for our device to exist. So we're waiting for the presence of this EBS volume. Um, and then I need to create a file system for my volume. Pretty straightforward there. Um, and then I'm going to mount my EBS volume to the to a mount data directory. And then I'm going to create another data directory within that mounted volume. And I'm going to give it some permissions and um, some ownership from the Kafka user and group. And it's that simple. I've just like that mounted an EBS volume to my EC2 instance. Conversely, when you look at our bash example, um, there are a couple things that you have to note here. It's not as readable, it's not as clear. So here I had to add um, you know, this, this comment on that I'm checking for my data volume. Um, one of the cool things that you have with Ansible is you have built-in documentation. When you look at this, this having to define a name makes you define the documentation and increase that readability. You don't necessarily have to do that with Bash. Someone left off this um, comment here, you would have to go and search some documentation and remember what dash A and dash B do. And quite frankly, I don't even remember off the top of my head. Um, and then you really have to understand um, and probably do a little bit of research on the different um, Linux commands that you're going to be able to do, use in order to make your file system, um, then create a directory and mount that device um, to the mount path. It's just a lot less readable. And I'm just really not a fan of Bash. <laughs> um, and then Chef comes into play. Um, so here we're doing the same thing, waiting for our device to be attached, um, creating a mount point, creating, uh, running a command. So you can see in our Chef, we're just executing the same command that we have in our Bash scripts. Um, and then mounting that device there. Uh, I, Chef, you have to understand Ruby. So if someone's not familiar and well versed in Ruby, you're gonna have to ramp up um, to learn that. And Chef and Bash both uh, don't have out of the box examples. So when I was Googling, because I primarily work with Ansible and Bash and haven't worked with Chef before, it took me about 10 minutes to find a valid example of how to attach this uh, data volume to my EC2 instance. Whereas literally you can type in Ansible make file system or Ansible attach EBS volume and it will come up with uh, an example in no time. Um, so those kind of highlight the benefits of using Ansible versus Bash versus Chef. But we have to take into consideration 
that these are just guidelines. If your team is well-versed in Ruby, it probably might make more sense for you to use Chef, right? All right, moving right along to Packer, another plucked uh, definition from the Packer website. Uh, and Packer is an open source tool for creating identical machine images for multiple platforms from a single source configuration. Um, so when you think of Packer, I want you to think of kind of the same thing that you thought about, thought about with Ansible in that it is a configuration management tool. It's going to enable us to install and download and package up anything that we need to for our application to run. But on top of that, it's going to bake it into a machine image. So we look at our infrastructure delivery uh, methodology. It's sitting on this application configuration side of things. Um, and you might be like, whoa, 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 Brie, you just said Ansible was for application configuration and Packer's for application configuration. Why wouldn't you just use Packer instead of Ansible? This is where we need to talk a little bit about baking versus frying. So this is just like a fun, I'm not 100% sure if this are even like industry standard terms, but it's a great way to visualize um, uh, these concepts of when you are provisioning your infrastructure, are you doing configurations before provision time? So before your instance comes up or at provision time. So when you think of baking, I want you to think of compile time. So prior to your infrastructure being provisioned, we are going to bake in all of the product and tool and language installations into an image. Um, these should include things like installing products or static configurations. I know that on any box, whether it comes up in my dev region, comes up in my QA region, it comes up in east, west, you name it, that I will always need Cassandra installed. And I will always need Java installed. And while we're at it, I always want to set up log rotate to clean up my log images um, after 30 days. Like that should hold true no matter what. And I want to bake that into a machine image so that I can cut down on my provision time. If you think about Black Friday, our application is getting slammed and we need to provision three new nodes in order to handle the traffic. If I have to wait 15 minutes for you to download Java, download Cassandra, do some additional configurations and then do more configurations on a per instance level, that's a, that's a lot of time. And you can cut down on that provision time by spinning up your infrastructure with a baked image and shave off you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes and just have to do the configurations that are at runtime. So when you think about frying, we're thinking about those runtime configurations that are needed. So at infrastructure provision time, when your node is coming up, what do you need to configure? So these are all dynamic. Is there a different change that you might have for your dev versus QA region? Maybe you have a different API key, or maybe um, you, you need the IP address of the node that's come up. There's no way for you to know what IP address you're going to get ahead of time unless you are statically hard coding that, and that's a whole other conversation on what we shouldn't do. But there's no way for you to know the IP address of your box prior to it coming up. So any configuration that's dependent upon that needs to be dynamically done at provision time or runtime. So now that we got that cleared up, let's take a look at Packer. Um, you can see here, we have a little bit of setup for my AWS environment. Um, I've obfuscated in all these examples some identifying information. Um, and then I pull in what AMI or base image I want to build my application on top of. And um, so here I'm using Ubuntu. Um, there's an owner tied to that relationship and you have to tell it a little bit about um, what type of instance you're provisioning and going to be baking in. And then we have this provisioners area. And this is where you're doing that application configuration. So you might be installing Postgres, for example, in our later um, example, we'll see how you can um, use Ansible in this provisioner section to help with that configuration. So it's really clean, JSON, pretty, pretty nice to read. 
Um, so why are we using Packer? Again, reducing that provision speed with our baked images. Um, super critical and quite frankly, uh, eliminate some annoyance as you're waiting for your boxes to come up um, with the reduced provision speed. It's super easy to implement. Like we saw that JSON, almost every engineer has JSON in their back pocket. There's nothing to learn here. It's cloud agnostic. And I say this with an asterisk. Um, anytime I say cloud agnostic, these tools, while they can be used to provision infrastructure in AWS, GCP, or um, Azure, you still might have to make some changes to your configuration. So for example, clearly you wouldn't have an AWS access key and secret key if you were provisioning for GCP. Um, but it enables you to not have to learn another tool um, or another way to do something because you've been vendor locked into the way that AWS implements uh, their image, baking images. Um, there's also a really cool automated smoke testing feature that you can get here. And rounding out the triple threat, we have Terraform. Another um, definition taken from the Terraform website. It is an open source infrastructure as code software tool created by HashiCorp. It enables users to define and provision a data center infrastructure using a high level configuration logic. So when you think of Terraform, we want to think about provisioning the hardware, air quotes, because we're in the cloud, right, that is needed to run our software. It is enabling us to provision and spin up new resources for us to consume. So when we look at this infrastructure delivery um, model, we're thinking about the resource creation side of things. So remember your nodes, your data center, or your data stores, your network and your security and your load balancer, um, another caveat here, sometimes if you think really in depth, uh, you might, for example, provision like a load balancer, and then you might configure it a little bit. Um, so the delineation between resource creation and configuration is a little blurred, but and all for the sake of this talk, we're going to say uh, when you're creating load balancers and all these resources that even though you might have to do a little bit of tweaking to configure them, it's solely in this resource creation um, box. So an example of Terraform in action, um, you can see here their Terraform configuration language. It, we define a provider. Um, we are making our launch configuration for our auto scaling group um, really straightforward and clear names. We have a name prefix. What's it going to be named with? What's the image ID that we're going to be building our nodes from? The instance type that you might be using. There's some also really sexy functionality that you can use um, that at a later talk um, to be able to build some dynamic configurations and share those configurations across your environment so that you're not necessarily hard coding everything. Um, to go back to that dry principle and our extensibility and maintainability of our infrastructure code. Um, here we are using the launch configuration that we defined up here and uh, to create our auto scaling group with a min size of one and a max size of three. So why Terraform? Ease of use, increased readability and maintainability. Continuing to go back and harp on um, those main principles of readability and maintainability. Um, as you saw, it's, it's clear to go through and see exactly what I'm building. It's exactly described uh, of what is going to be running in my production dev QA environments. Um, they have really reliable and tested APIs for creating your infrastructure components. Um, Ansible has the functionality to provision some infrastructure for you, however, uh, the Ansible APIs to me aren't the most reliable, and that's an opinion, Bree's opinion, take it with a grain of salt. Um, so Terraform to me just has some really tried and true tested APIs for creating this infrastructure. Um, cloud agnostic, again, going back to that caveat, um, if you were to switch to GCP or Azure in the middle of a project, yes, you are probably going to have to change some of your code, but you're not gonna have to go and learn a whole new tool, how to implement and run that tool. Your automation for invoking the command doesn't have to change. 
just a little bit of specification. And you probably reuse some of the components that you already had. In the Women Who Code Career Nav segment of our show, you'll hear real world advice from people who are currently working in the technology industry and personally know the steps needed to succeed. These talks will include both career advice as well as a look at the industry itself and its practices. Today on the Women Who Code Career Navigation segment, we have Camille Eddy, Senior Product Engineer at Sector Software, discussing how she helps create systems and platforms to help Black women's voices be heard. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Sayerson, the Senior Content Manager at Women Who Code, and today we have Camille Eddy from Idaho. Camille, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Definitely. So Camille, you're a senior project engineer at Sector Software. You also are a visibility and platform strategist working for yourself. You're also a speaker, so you're a really busy lady. Um, And you uh, help mission-driven startups build inclusive engineering platforms that scale. Can you kind of explain what this looks like in practice? Yeah, a lot of times I think, especially for mission-driven people um, and think women startups, think Black-led startups, you know, all of those types of mission-driven areas, um, they will develop for their community first, which I really love. But oftentimes they're developing different types of projects that are interconnected with them. And so they'll want to take either their email marketing or their social media and put those together in a platform. Um, Some people are actually building like novel platforms themselves. So being able to say from an engineer standpoint, this is the technology stack that you want to use. This is how you get engagement up. This is how you think start thinking more like a platform and less like an individual. That's Mm -hmm. usually where I'm coming in to help people. Um, And they hire me when they're ready to bring those different pieces together into one. Awesome. I love that. And what about that work excites you and where is the passion for you in that? Yeah, so like my mom says, I love systems. Um, And part of that work is really bringing together um, a system that someone is doing really well and adding it to a new, more influential system. And for me, my passion is that there should be more women and there should be more Black women online talking about what they're passionate about, making their voices heard. And for me, platforms are the way to do it. You can definitely test your message, understand who you're talking to, right, with one single social media account, like Twitter, for example. But where you really gain power is when you create a platform that's on your own terms, uh, not on other people's terms, not dependent on someone saying, yes, I'll write you a check. So with the current technology that we have, we can accomplish that. And my goal is just to get more women voices out there um, in a credible and also just powerful way. Yeah. Definitely. And how did you get into this line of work in particular? Yeah. Uh, it, it was a journey for sure. This, I, I sometimes I tell people like I'm on my third career and I know I'm young for, to say that, but um, you know, I, w- I got really interested in tech when I was um, still in high school and maybe even right before high school started building websites and then um, went to college for mechanical engineering because I was really interested in robotics and space. And um, right around then I started kind of understanding a little bit more about how small businesses work and what it means to like lead a small team. I led a couple student-led teams. And so by the time I was ready to graduate, I realized I wanted to pivot from mechanical engineering to product. And um, so I made that pivot with my current company at Sector Software. I like to say that was the final um, uh, pivot that I needed to make um, fully into that role. But it, along the way, still meeting a lot of small business owners who, who didn't know what the next step was. They might hire me to build a website for them or to build out their social media. But I really understood that there is a whole system that you can be a part of and um, that it's a little bit more um, of a partnership at that point versus like a one-off, I send someone an invoice and I don't hear from them again. So um, that was something that I tested out um, right before I graduated and I really launched myself into it after I graduated. So I was a copy to have that kind of ability to pivot from something that I was passionate about to something else that I'm also passionate about. Yep. Very cool, thank you for sharing that. And being in tech, 
a minute. What has your experience been like as a woman in tech? Yeah. So I, you know, there's so much need for leadership, I think, in, in our space for people to understand what the role of, um, of is for diversity. You know, you hear about diversity fatigue and some of those other like just really icky terms when it talks about describing where we are as a field and as an industry. So, um, you know, I've definitely seen opportunities for me to lead and, and to be that new voice. A lot of times, not only am I the first woman on a team, but I might be the first black woman on the team, or it might be that we're creating a new team. And yes, there's representation because it's a new team. There's a tendency to default to old patterns, uh, the way people have done things in other companies in the past that might not be the future we want to create. So um, for my role, uh, I'm going to use a, a, a little bit of a term here, but I like try to burn the bridges. Like there's a lot of old bad habits that we really shouldn't be employed anymore. It's time to burn those down. And I try to burn them down behind me um, as I move forward. And um, I definitely had my share just like really coming to my own and my awareness and my confidence as a woman in tech being able to say this is the way I want to do things and no no one around us has done it like this before but I have the clout I have the accolades that like show what I can do and how I can bring a vision to to reality so um yeah that's been part of my job I feel is as a woman in tech burn those bridges make it so that we can't do those old habits anymore yep Definitely. That's really powerful. Thank you for, for sharing that. I really Thank like you. that idea of burning the bridges. You don't normally think about it that way, but yeah, yeah. it makes a lot of sense in the context you're describing. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, have you, so a lot of um, being in tech, being new to tech, being a woman in tech, there's a lot of fear that comes out sometimes, yeah. either fear of the unknown or fear of just imposter syndrome. Is that something that you've experienced? If so, do you have any tips for navigating that? Yeah, so um, definitely feel, feel, felt imposter syndrome. And something that I, I think is practical about imposter syndrome is you can be feeling those effects of it for so long that you think it's normal. And so for me, it was about coming, being kind of shaken out of the normalcy of, I feel like I'm inadequate. I feel like I'm going to be found out and I'm changing my behavior to make sure those things don't happen to me. And so having mentors, um, and I have a, a, a specific method to mentorship. Uh, most likely, I will never go to somebody and say, can you be my mentor? But I do have a history with six or seven really awesome and amazing mentors in my life that, that I never had to ask that to. And so the way I do mentorship to shake me out of beliefs that are wrong is um, I have a posse method. And this idea is that I can learn from anybody. I can have a million mentors in my lifetime because there are people that are younger than me, older than me, in a different industry than me, uh, my peers as well, the people who are more similar to me. Um, they can all give me a piece of the information that I need and I can pick the best of all of those um, advice. And so um, my posse method is what's been really helpful helpful to ground me um, and to shake me out of those wrong beliefs. And that's how I would go about really understanding a new environment, an environment where no one before you has like said, yeah, I've been there. I, I planted my flag there. I can help you out. If that's the case, then I suggest that you go out and you find those people who have that information and just listen to them. Um, and I know that's different from the traditional way that we've been taught about mentorship, but it's definitely helped me being out here in rural Idaho, for example. Um, you know, when I was in college and I went to college in Idaho, um, it was hard for me to have um, a clear understanding of Silicon Valley because nobody in my peer group or in my mentor group at the time had been in Silicon Valley. But I used Twitter and the internet to build a connection. And by the time I got my first internship in Silicon Valley, it was like I had a homecoming event and I didn't even know it. They're like, oh, we need you were coming and we're so happy you're here and I had a wealth of connections and friendships to rely on and to really learn the lay of the land um and and that's probably the first place where I really understood that I was used to the feelings of imposter syndrome and I could shake that and I could do something different and so that's how I would suggest you know going about mentorship and being able to confidently say nope I do belong here and this is why Oh, thank you for sharing that. Such a different perspective on something that is very familiar to most people. I really I like that. Thank you. Awesome. That's yeah. hard. 
Um, so with that, talking about building a community online, a lot of people are in a situation now where they're being forced to do that. And it's a very different landscape than meeting people in person. So can you share any tips that have you been successful in building a community online, whether that's on Twitter or other platforms? Yes, and I think this is amazing. I think this is something that we should really lean into because I felt like there was a whole section of our tech community or students who were still falling behind the online networking game because they would use the obvious excuses like, oh, that's impersonal or it's not reflective of who I want to be as a professional. But now those rules are being broken, right? They have to be, otherwise you won't survive. So um, I'm really hopeful that this new adoption of online tools will continue and, and be prevalent because it's useful and resourceful. Um, and so for, for me, I suggest connecting with people you don't know. That's one of the first ways I think that the internet is is really useful is that ability to say, I don't know you, but we do have a similar professional interest. Would you like to connect? That should be easy to do. That, that should, there should be no problem there. So connecting with people who you don't know, and then also making offers or at least distinguishing between gives or asks, sorry, asks and offers. So when you're asking somebody for something, uh, do it based on an understanding of where they are and where they're going and that by giving you that information it fits within their value system right if they have a community mindset then yes they're going to give but sometimes you know we get caught in chasing uh people online like we just keep trying to send them a connection request or we try to meet them here meet them there it's okay with the abundance of the internet to move on to the next person and come back to that other person. So uh, really try not to get too siloed on an individual. Think about it from a community perspective of being more connected to people in the community gives me the clout to go ahead and meet more people and to gain more followers or to get more connection requests. Um, so think about it more from a, a broad perspective than just the individual. And then uh, third, um, asking people for information, making sure that that relationship is actually beneficial, not just leaving them, you know, on red in your inbox because, you know, there's so many people to talk to. So actually picking up, you know, sometimes it's okay to send a connection request without a message with it. But when you do have that connection to that person, you understand what they're doing and how it aligns with your interests. just doing that next step, which is ask a, a compelling question, not just how are you? Uh, I wanted to connect with you and I hope you feel the same but more like, oh, how are you? I saw that you did this. I did ABC. Can we talk about it some more? Um, I think that that's helpful of moving, you know, the abundance of the internet, you know, not focusing on just one person, but definitely taking those opportunities to start a conversation with somebody. So they're just not, um, you know, like wondering why you connected with them. I think that that's always um, helpful for growing an organic relationship that can eventually turn into that more traditional face-to-face -face relationship later down the road. Uh, one more tip, this is kind of like a bonus. Uh, network before you need to network. It's always better to network from a position of leverage. You have the job, you're good, you're going great. And then you use those relationships later to help you down the road. I think that's something that we kind of forget about LinkedIn and, and, and networking when we're okay. It, it's better to be networking at that point than later. Really great advice, very, very smart. I love that. Um, is there a woman uh, in tech either in history or modern time that uh, has inspired your career? Yes, for sure. So I mentioned earlier that I got into mechanical engineering because I was interested in space science and robotics. Mm -hmm. And so um, first off, uh, to give a little background, I was homeschooled for all of my primary education. So all the way up through high school. Mm -hmm. And my mom had a, had knew I had an interest in engineering. We just didn't know for what, right? We just knew it was engineering. So she made me, uh, and I was shy. So she made me go to the local university because they had a high school planning party. Now, we had already talked about engineering. We had already talked about me wanting to be like an astronaut and being interested in space science. I walk in um, my very first time walking into a university classroom and uh, in front of me was a former astronaut and her name was Barbara Morgan. And she taught in Idaho and she was selected to be a teacher in space with NASA. And uh, if you know the Challenger accident, she was actually the backup 
to one of the people on that accident. So um, she went to space, she came back and decided to go back into academics and into teaching. And so I got to meet her and she became my um, mentor for four years, which was amazing. So she took me uh, through the last couple of years of high school and the first couple of years of college. And her mentorship really taught me about leadership. Like a lot of the leadership lessons or the way I execute leadership now is based on her example because she was there we had to um, we got the opportunity to do some NASA projects together and she taught me how to write a NASA report like a NASA engineer like a NASA astronaut and I thought that was so cool how she would go line item by line item I spent some late nights with her I got to travel with her to Houston and I got to see her in her element but then also she taught me a lot about how to be in my element as a student leader and um you know I'm not doing space science right now but if I were you know I would say that it's very similar to what I do today in creating systems, documentation, like all of that work that I do now in a product engineering sense, um, I think I can trace back to some of those really early lessons. So I'm really thankful for that. Um, and also, I'm also thankful that, I mean, I was, I'm in Idaho, right? And there's a lot of easy ways to tokenize individuals, especially if they're the only black person on the team. And she was one of the few people that I never felt that with. And that was really important to me back then, you know, talking about imposter syndrome, like we did earlier you know, that time was where I learned like that I feel uncomfortable. I feel like I need to pretend. And she was the one person I felt that I didn't need to do that with. So um, yeah, definitely here for uh, mentors and also here for um, people who match your identity. That was really important at that time that she was another woman going through um, similar, she had gone through similar, you know, times of learning and, and trying to figure out where her place was in, in the system. So um, that was really helpful, I think, in those, especially in those years. Yeah. Definitely. Wow. What a great inspiration. Yes. You know, thank you so much for all of the knowledge you shared with us and your story. Really inspiring. Thank you for being here. It was really yeah. a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash womenwhocode. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.